Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we celebrate the spontaneous story slammers from last season with the first part of our annual story competition, Slammer of the Year Double Feature. We broke our favorite storytellers from the season into two groups, and in this episode, we showcase Team Metro Goldwyn Wire Jessica with their stories on the theme B Movie. Recorded live at the Outdoor Amphitheater at Jump in downtown Boise, they are Cheryl Wheaton, Declan Bryan, Isaac Prado, and Bryce Sloan. It's story time. Cheryl Wheaton, the only slammer to have been called up twice in the same show. My folks ran a dairy farm. Now when you travel on a dairy farm, you leave at 10 in the morning after chores. You get back at six before chores. You can't travel too far between 10 and six. So when they retired, it was like the prison door opened and they were like, yes, travel. So this was a trip we took to South America and our first stop was in Lima, Peru. The guide came and got us at the plane and took us to our hotel. And when we got there, we were like, whoa, this is like holiday in Paris. It was a beautiful European style hotel, very dark wood, very quiet. And when we went down to eat, the maitre d' took us to our table. Oh, and these waiters with their little towels over their arms were all standing around looking at us, just waiting to do whatever we needed. And then we realized why they were all standing around waiting for us is because there was no one in the place but us. And it was large. And we thought, well, they must all eat early or late. So the next day we went on a tour of the city. And the bus took us down and showed us all the interesting old colonial buildings. And then on the way home, he took us by the hills. Now, if it was here or in California, you would go, mansions, beautiful views. No, he said, we cannot go up there. That's the slums. So in South America, the people in the slums have the view, and the people that are rich live down in the valley. So then the next day, we flew up to Cusco. Now, Cusco is a cute little mountain town, and we stayed in this nice little hotel, and it was very quiet. We seemed to be the only ones there. So we took a walk. And there was an alpaca, and there was a llama, and there was a, shouldn't you be in a zoo? And as we walked along, there was this wall. Big, huge stones, and littler ones, and they just looked jumbled, like somebody had tossed them there. But it turns out that the guys had used hammers and chisels, and had formed those stones in such a way that they fit together like a jigsaw puzzle, no mortar, they just sat there, uh, through all those centuries and all the earthquakes. <clears throat> so then the next day it was time to come home. So we went out to the airport and we went to our gate, which was a glass building with um, garage doors on each side. So there was talking in Spanish and everybody gets up and runs to this garage door. Nothing happens. Then there's more talking. Everybody runs to the other garage door. It lifts. Way there is an airplane and these people start running some of them have chickens some of them have produce away they go and we're like well let's go so we go out there but we're slow and they're fast 
So when we get there, we get on, and I find a seat for my mom on the aisle, good, because my dad, in order to get a place to sit, he had to climb over two people to sit by the window. Nobody gets up, they may lose their seat. So then I went and I found if I climbed over this man, I could sit in the middle seat. And there was a Spanish lady sitting there beside me. And she was going, oh, no, 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 no. And I was like, yeah, I agree, it's crazy. Look at these people, chickens, what do you do? Rumble, 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 rumble. Uh-oh, we probably can't get off this plane. Sounds like it can't move. Sounds like it's gonna fall apart. No, it's moving. Rumble, 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 rumble. Woo. And we're like, oh my grief, oh my grief. Well, we made it back to Lima. And when we flew home, I discovered why it was so quiet. <clears throat> because there was an article in the paper and it said, terrible cholera epidemic hits Lima, Peru. Starts in those slums that we saw. And it was just after the Shining Path, a terrible terrorist organization, organization that killed, kidnapped, and robbed tourists. So here we were, behind us, the shining path. In front of us, the cholera epidemic. We were just fine. Ladies and gentlemen, Declan Bryan. Declan is our youngest slammer, I believe, of summer of the year ever. Yay! Hello. <laughs> Three years after my surreal stay in a Florida trailer park and after my grandfather's passing, my dad and I went to his old storage unit and sitting on the floor was a black plastic briefcase. I thought it looked wicked cool so I went to go pick it up and I remember the weight of it surprising me and my dad, seeing my reaction, told me that there was a typewriter inside. It. <laughs> Filled with excitement of seeing something older than me, I went to go pop it open. It wasn't the 1920s black metal typewriter that you've seen in the movies, but instead a 1970s beige modern classic 12 Smith Corona. I thought it was awesome. So, I, And for, from sitting in a storage unit for about 40 years, it was in immaculate condition. The colors were vibrant, showed no signs of aging, the ink ribbon was fresh, and the keys still moved effortlessly. So I took the typewriter and I put it in the back of my dad's car and when I got home, I placed it right on the center of my desk like a pedestal. I wound some paper into the machine and began to type out a poem that seemed so profound to my 12-year-old self. I still remember the title of the poem, I Will Always Tie Your Shoes. I also remember the struggles of typing on a typewriter for the first time. You know, the thing with typewriters is you have to slam on the keys, like just hitting each key one at a time. And you cannot type too fast or it'll jam. And if you're, you know, getting into a rhythm and you're not paying attention, you'll type all the way off the page and get startled by a loud ding. It's totally inconvenient, but I just love getting into a rhythm and acting like some magnificent writer who can use technology most of my peers don't want to use because I'm 17. <laughs> I also love removing paper from the machine and feeling the raised prints of each letter on the back. For months, I wrote everything on that typewriter. Volumes of pathetic poetry. Anything, everything, except for school papers because there was no way I was gonna ruin a machine with that kind of blasphemy. <laughs> Another reason I love this typewriter so much is because it was my grandpa's. So my grandpa passed away while I was staying in Florida and no one told me for a month. 
I've been filled with grief and uncertainty since then, but I know each time I open the typewriter's case, it's a chance to connect with the man who I hadn't known very well. I would have lunch with my dad and ask him questions about the typewriter, and one particular question changed my whole trajectory of what I thought I wanted to do with my life. I was like, how did Papa Ron get this typewriter? And he was like, oh, he was, a reporter. he was a reporter for the Idaho Statesman. And I was like, what? So he was a journalist. When I went home, I quickly researched what being a journalist is, and it soon became part of my whole being. I don't believe I'm a journalist just because he was. I believe it's because of my Papa Ron that I know what a journalist is and does. Every time I write an article, my Papa Ron's at the front of my mind, and every time I get an article published, I know he'd be so proud of me. <laughs> I've written all of my friends tons of letters, probably a stack about this big, <laughs> on that typewriter. I send letters to Alabama, to Ontario, Canada, to Doha, Qatar. Ah! <laughs> And I know that my grandpa's so happy that the typewriter gets used every day. And knowing he's happy inspires me to keep writing, even when I'm forced to use a computer. Thank you. Here he comes, Isaac Prado. So this story goes out to, you know, one of the best storytellers that I've ever known, my grandfather, who uh, actually just passed, but I am sharing this in, you know, of, in honor of him and in happiness and to all the great storytellers and writers and producers and readers out there. Um, well, for a timeline of the story, just for context, this happened between 2015 and 2017. And I like using Craigslist, so this one time I was on Craigslist, and I saw a link that said work in China, and work and live in China for one year. So I clicked that link, and I got an email. This was like in November. They asked me to come on for an interview on New uh, Christmas Eve, and I'm like, okay, that's China. They don't really celebrate Christmas. All right, I'll do it. So Christmas Eve, I'm partying with my family. It's 7 p.m. I hop on a Skype interview can you hop on a Skype interview, second interview, on New Year's Eve? I said, oh, okay, well, China, uh, they don't, they have Lunar New Year. Their, holiday, their New Year's is in February. I said, okay. So I'm partying with my family. I'm already, you know, like, at the time I was 22, I don't know. And I got hop on the interview. They said, can you be here at the beginning of February? I said, what? And Beaver Movie, to me, is like, no way is this really happening. Like me standing right here in front of you right now, like, is this really happening? No, nah, it's happening. Yes, it's really happening. I gotta, be, I gotta share my story. So I get on this plane, and there I go to China. And I'm in China for about six months. Then I go and visit Vietnam. I'm on a break from work. And I'm in Vietnam. I have this amazing time. I was on my way to Cambodia. I didn't get to go there. But I went to a town in Vietnam called Hoi An. It's in the center of Vietnam. I was traveling from north to south. And I had the most amazing time there. I really enjoyed shoveling the cow poop that I was working with as I volunteered at an animal shelter. So I grew up doing these things. And I quit all that stuff. And I said, I'm never going to do that again. That was 
my chores when I was in elementary, high school. I don't want to do that. And so I'm in Vietnam working for free, shoveling this stuff for pigs, goats, 20 dogs. And one night, I stay out later than usual, and I was locked out of the, of the animal shelter. And so I said, okay, let me go to the clinic. It's another house. So I'm riding on my motorbike bike through the paddies in Vietnam, through the fields. It's at, late at night, and I'm locked out of the clinic. And so by the time, it's like 3 in the morning. And so I'm sitting outside by the gate, and I turn, and I sit down. And I look up, and then I see a white owl flying to me, and then it perches on the light pole just like that. Like, what, is this really happening? There's the light pole right there. So I see the owl, and we have a staring contest for I don't even know how long, for like, I say an hour or one minute. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It took off. And I said, whoa. I, the only place that I had service, I had to run to the close to the house. I had my phone, luckily I had my charger, so I was plugging my phone into the wall outside of the house as close as I can to get Wi-Fi, and I googled, what does it mean to see a white owl late at night? And I was reading a paragraph in this Google, whatever website I pulled up, and it said, pay attention to the wind when you see a white owl. As I was reading that, the wind was blowing from this side of the house, and it said, the wind direction could change, and all of a sudden the wind stopped, and then it started blowing from this side of the house. And I was like, no way. <laughs> Is this really happening right now? <laughs> like, no. So then I got on my motorbike. By this time, it's like 4 in the morning. I go to the, um, to the beach. It's like 10 minutes away. Get to the beach. And I said, I got to move to Vietnam now. Call back to China the next morning. I quit my job. Moved to Vietnam a month later. So I'm in Vietnam doing my thing. And then one day, I get a message from my friend. She said, hey, I had a dream of you last night, and she's back in Texas. I had a dream of you last night, and you were in an ancient town, a town that was filled with water, but everybody was so happy, and everybody was having fun. A month later, right before, uh, it was December, right before my birthday, and a major storm happens, the town floods, the river floods, and it floods the whole ancient city, and we're all having fun right here, right now. <laughs> Whatever, this is before COVID. <laughs> Mr. Bryce Sloan. Here he goes. I might need to adjust that mic. When I think of B-grade movies, I think of aliens. And I know what you're thinking. What should I know about aliens? Well, that's kind of what I wondered too. But it turned out I knew quite a bit more than I thought I did. So let me talk a little bit about my encounters with aliens. And, and then what would you do if you did encounter an alien? And then how that turned out. So it turned out that I was actually once upon a time an alien. How'd that work out? Well, I grew up without a TV. That's part of the reason I didn't know what a B-grade movie was. And 
I grew up, I was in Vail, Oregon, and a kid that doesn't have a TV, who is in elementary school and junior high and doesn't know about Dukes of Hazard and G.I. Joe and all of that, you're pretty much an alien. That's just how it is. And then later on, I went, to, went over to Europe and I studied in, in school there. And again, I was an alien. I was in a different country and I learned what it felt like. And to continue this experience, I married an alien. In fact, it said resident alien on our green card. And she was definitely an alien. Came from a different culture and we tried to make it work. But the story that was most exciting to me was when I had a close encounter with an alien here in Boise, Idaho, not far from this very stage. Can you imagine? They're all around us. So, and this morning, it's my, my daughter is getting up from school, or is getting up and getting ready for school. And my kids have a routine like your kids do, I'm sure. And, and all of a sudden, there's that little patter of feet moving really, really fast a lot faster than normal on a early morning get up for school type day. And you guys know what I mean. Your parent just like ESP, just like awake. And I was up and out the door and I, she's like, dad, dad, there's something in our yard and it's on the deck and it's up against the door. I was like, ooh. <laughs> This is definitely B grade, <laughs> but this was real. And I could see from the stairs that there was something fluttering and acting very strange on our back deck. Definitely B grade, but this was real. And so I went down there and my cousin is here and I know that he's got a gun in his, in his room and he's staying with us for a while. And so I, Nick, back me up. So I felt pretty brave. So then I look out and there is a well-dressed woman and she's looking off away and she's making these weird kind of like a butterfly is the only way I could describe it. And she's well-dressed and she seems very disoriented and it's early in the morning and it's a little bit of the early light and I open the door because I know Nick's back there maybe with a gun. And I'm like, uh, are you okay? That's what you would tell an alien after all, are you okay? And she's like, which galaxy am I on? I was like, well, <laughs> how do you respond to that one? <laughs> so, uh, well, she appears well-dressed. I've got Nick with a gun, and I go back in, and Nick, call the cops. But if you have an alien, and she's on your backyard, and she's from a different galaxy, what do you do? I said, are you hungry? So, she sat down and we gave her some cold cereal and she was definitely hungry. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know how I got here. I, I, we started quizzing her and, and I don't exactly know why, but we brought her into our kitchen table. So we were outside, it was a little bit cold, I think, and then we brought her inside to our kitchen table. And so then we got the alien on one side. My daughter has to get ready for school, so she's eating breakfast and I'm up on the bar eating breakfast up there. It's like a very family meal with our alien, and she's like, I think I came from a spiral galaxy. I don't know what exactly what it looked like, but I'm here, and I don't know where to go. And so, 
That was my question. So fortunately, Nick says the police are on their way. So what do you do when you don't know what else to do? You call the police and they take away your problem. Well, they came. She got a second bowl of cereal and we called the cops. And I suspect that's what we're going to do when the aliens come. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.